0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is writer and poet, Maggie Ruth Smith. Maggie Ruth Smith was born and raised in Iowa, In 1993, she moved to New York City, where she received her MFA at Hunter College. In 2003, she moved to Dublin in Ireland, where she was a founding partner and creative writing teacher at Big Smoke Writing Factory. She moved back to the Midwest in 2012, and is now living in Omaha, Nebraska, with her daughter Lila and dog Ollie. She has published poems in the UK, Ireland, and the US in publications such as Prol, Iota, and Burnt District. Welcome to the show, Maggie.
1: Thank you, Sarah. You forgot my cats. They're going to be very offended.
0: Oh Well, let's get them covered now. What are your cats' names? Daisy, Dahlia, and Jesse. Oh, three of them. So they, they'll gang up on <laughs> they us. They
1: outnumber us. So, well, actually, it's equal if you count the dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let me ask you to begin with, do you remember when you were young, books, poems, reading, writing, being a large part of your youthful experience?
1: Yes, I grew up in a house where reading was just part of our everyday life. We had lots of books. We had books for Christmas. We read books together. And I think that, you know, all all three of us, my brother, sister, and I all um, enjoyed reading avidly. I was... I probably read more that I didn't comprehend at an early age because I was a, I was a very good reader. I advanced quickly. So I would whip through books right and left, um, some of which I would absorb and some I'm sure were way over my head, but it was a huge part of my childhood for sure.
0: Is that something that your parents encouraged or was it just simply something that they, they couldn't stop?
1: Oh, they encouraged it. Yeah. And both my parents were were big readers as well. They're, you know, that was always something that, you know, um, seeing my parents with a book in their hand was something that was very common. Um, so, and yeah, and, and gifts were, you know, we always had a, a book at Christmas. We still do. We all still get a book at Christmas, but yeah, we we went to the library. We we read all the time. We were read to at, at bedtime, you know, from a very early age, and uh, so yeah, that was very encouraged by my parents. I hate to say this in a judgy way, but I think that I when I walk into people's homes, one of the first things I do is I look for bookshelves. <laughs> And uh, that, is, and, you know, you certainly walk into people's homes and they don't have bookshelves. Maybe they have a vast library of, of albums or or they have, you know, sports memorabilia and all that's fine. But for me, connecting with people is always going to be connecting with their books and understanding who they are. Um, I feel like that's the, the quickest way to figure out a person to suss them out is to go over to their bookshelf and see what they've got on it. So it's always exciting to me when I walk into someone's home for the first time to to search out the bookshelf, to get a good long look and and kind of take them in a little bit.
0: I thought I was just like looking through the medicine cabinet. Right,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And you can also quietly judge the books as well as you could quietly judge the cabinet. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Uh, but no, I I, I really enjoy. Um, I, I obviously have friends that are, you know, very literary, literally minded and want to um, are always reading and, and have quite a lot of books laying around. But um, I think it's the people that you don't know, maybe at a party that you've never gone to, that is kind of fun to discover who they are.
0: Does that make you feel self-conscious when people come to your home? And I would imagine that your expectation is that when they've excused themselves, actually what they're doing is checking out your, your bookshelf.
1: (laughs) No, it doesn't make me self. I'm actually quite proud of my book collection. I, when I moved from Ireland, I had to get rid of a lot because I could only, I had to pack everything into a certain amount of boxes for the, um, the crates that we had, uh, we had reserved. And so I got, I had to get rid of a lot of books, which was pretty painful. Um, but I could sort of, you know, had the ones that were really important. And I, I made sure I brought them back. And I've been um, busy for the last six years since I moved back to Omaha, um, getting that bookshelf back up into shape. Um, no, I, I am very proud of my bookshelves. And I, as part of the reason I bought my house is because I have a sunroom that has the kind of floor to ceiling bookshelves. And I just said, yep, this is this is my room. And uh, that was the first thing I unpacked were all my books. And it really is such a huge part of who I am. Um, I actually had a dinner party once and with some folks that I, I didn't know really well. And I'd had them over um, to kind of get to know them better. And um, one of my friends, Kelly Grace, who is now a very good friend of mine, but I think it was maybe one of the first times we had socialized together was sitting on the sofa and he was looking over at my bookshelf and he said, who's the poet in this house? And my heart just leapt because I thought, oh, somebody, (laughs) somebody noticed all my books of poetry. And we were like fast friends at that point and immediately started talking about poetry. And, and I found out he was a lover of it as well. And, So, you know, it's, it's, it's also, you know, a wonderful way to sort of connect with people who you might not know very well, find out who they are a little bit.
0: How do you regard books in some way as, uh, you know, a window into someone else's soul? Uh, Are there ways that you perhaps look at a collection or someone's reading history and then decipher who they are as a person?
1: Well, I do. I I, will be honest, though. One of the first things I always notice is, do they have a system in their bookshelf? Are they alphabetical? Are they genre? Are they... <laughs> I'm that I'm that interested, you know, it, it, psychologically. Um, but yes, I think that first of all, I do seek out poetry in people's bookshelves because I think um, it is not necessarily the go to for most people to to read poetry. Um, you'll, you know, often see sort of a collection here and there or um, something like, you know, Leaves of Grass or or a, a book of Emily Dickinson's or something that would be the typical sort of American Americana uh, book of poetry. Um, but if i If I if I see that there's a section that's that's devoted to poetry, that's when I get really excited. Um, But, yeah, I do think, you know, you can you can definitely um, extrapolate a lot about a person based on um, on what they've got. You know, there's always that thing where I've got these books that have been given to me that I didn't particularly like, but I don't really want to part with that. I sort of stick at the bottom of the bookshelf because (laughs) I'm um, curating the experience that people have when they look at my books, which is very egotistical. But I I'm sure there are people I'm sure that I'm I'm uh, learning about people um, based on maybe books that they have on their bookshelf that they aren't they didn't particularly like that. They just have there. So I do try to keep that in mind.
0: We're recording this on the last day in April, Mm -hmm. and April is National Poetry Month, Mm -hmm. and you have been using your social media feed to share a poem or more a day in honor both of your love of the written word and poetry, but also the fact that this is a month where we celebrate poetry Mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. So why were you moved to do that?
1: Well, I've been doing that for a few years now. I do it for two reasons. One reason is because it uh, forces me to every day find a poem that I do not recognize or do not know or a new poet. Now, I will say occasionally I will post an old favorite or something that is requested. But for the most part, what I do is I, I force myself to take, you know, 15 minutes, a half an hour to go, uh, I I, pr- I do like uh, the Poetry Foundation website. I think it's quite vast. Um, I I would maybe make some changes to it personally if I was in charge of it, but um, I do find that it's a good place to go and explore. They also have a wonderful app don't know if you know of it, but the app is on your phone and you open it up and you just hit a little button that says spin and it spins all these different categories and it lands on, um, there's two different categories and it sort of lands on two categories and it has like a whole list of poems that, um, that fall under the category. So it may be passion and love, or it may be nature and humor or whatnot. And, um, and so it just sort of, And you can also then toggle those categories. So if you really want to read a poem about passion and nature, then you can you can just slide those categories together and then you have all these poems that are of that subject. And um, so I I do that sometimes I'm in the mood to be picky about what I want to read and sometimes I just spin it and I, I look. Um, and so I, I do it because it reminds me of the, the love I have for the art form. And it also keeps me current, it keeps me looking at new poems and new poets and, and new ideas um, and challenges me in that way. The other reason I do it is because I do feel a deep uh, commitment to sharing the accessibility of poetry with people. Uh, I think one of the great disservices that happens when we are in our early education. Is that we are given these pretty weighty, often written in a dialect or lexicon uh, from hundreds of years ago poems that are very hard to digest. Not by any means that they are not. Completely relevant and very important to our education. But I think children are often um, felt at a distance with poetry because they cannot um, digest the poems that they're given or they maybe even can't just can't relate to the poems that they're given. It's a different time often they're written by adults that are talking about things that maybe a child is not going to necessarily relate to. Uh, So, so people tend to get this idea that poetry is inaccessible or difficult, or I don't understand the language or it's not about me. Um, And so one of my, my things that I set forth to do in poetry month, and also when I'm teaching poetry is to find poems. And I want to make sure I'm really careful not to say they're easy poems or they're quote unquote, accessible poems, because I think that that deeply, um, uh, deep, does a deep disservice to the the poems themselves. Um, it's not that, that they're dumbed down in any way or they're simplified in any way. It's just that there are thousands of poems in the world that people can certainly relate to and that are written contemporarily in a way that is very um, digestible and very exciting um, and current and relevant to the reader. And I I, I feel a deep urge at all times to, to make sure people understand that and to say, Hey, you know, there, there are poems. Um, and, and it's funny to me um, also the fact that I'm putting it on social media. So you get all these likes and you get people to jump in and say, Oh my God, I really like this one. Um, it's always interesting to me, the people that relate to one poem, the people that relate to another. And there's just, there are poems that I've, I've posted poems that I wasn't even sure I particularly related to that people um, will just jump on and say, Oh my God, I just, it's, I, I crazy love this poem. And um, so it, it's a way for me to kind of get excited about opening up something for someone and giving them something to be excited about.
0: I feel like now is the right time for a, poem? a selected reading. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> so maybe pick something uh, and explain yes. what and why it is you've chosen it and <clears throat> perhaps grace us with the reading.
1: Well, uh, my goodness, I have so many things to read. Uh, I, brought, I went down a rabbit hole today and I, I pulled a bunch of stuff. Um, I will read, uh, I'll start by reading a poem that a friend of mine requested that I post the other day because it's a poem I, I think I post it every year. I think I've been doing this now for, oh gosh, four or five years. And um, this one's always a big favorite. It's a list poem, which people often really enjoy list poems. This is a poem that I've always related to because it reminds me a lot of myself. My friend Ashley Crowd, who's a wonderful poet who lives in South Carolina, um, asked that I post this because I think she and I both connect um, with it and with the the feeling of it. And um, it's, it's a list poem, which uh, I think people connect to a lot because uh, a list poem is a great way, not only to, it's fun to read, but also it's a great prompt to write a poem is to just, if you're struggling and you don't know what you want to write about is just to start writing a list, you know, the things I hate about my dad or the things that I love about my dog or, you know, whatever. Um, it's a great way into a poem. And um, so this is a poem called Fireflies by the poet cecilia woolock and i'll go ahead and read it fireflies and these are my vices impatience bad temper wine the more than occasional cigarette an almost unquenchable thirst to be kissed a hunger that isn't hunger but something like fear a staunching of dread and a taste for bitter gossip of those who've wronged me for bitterness and flirting with strangers And saying, sweetheart, to children whose names I don't even know. And driving too fast. And not being Buddhist enough to let insects live in my house. Or those cute little toy-like mice. Whose soft gray bodies in sticky traps I carry, lifeless, out to the trash. And that I sometimes prefer the company of a book to a human being. And humming and living inside my head. And how as a girl, I trailed a slow-hipped aunt... At twilight across the lawn And learned to catch fireflies in my hands To smear their sticky, still-pulsing flickering Onto my fingers and earlobes Like jewels Thank you You're welcome Do you feel shaken down and out of love run? Drop bombs collecting dust off the thought of who you were are you burdened by time from blacks to dark marks? Mention perspective, violet, good, you still move on, on. And I feel the comfort in the sphere here of my birth. And the cat's out of the bag, growing. Out of the bag, roaming, are the words on your tongue? Words on your tongue? Did you mean what you said when you said that you are done? Are the words on your tongue?
0: Words on your
1: tongue? Did you mean what you said when you said that you
0: are done? Let... What I want to do is ask you about your transition to Dublin. What motivated you to go to Dublin?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how that informed your writing endeavors.
1: Mm. Well, I uh, I was living in New York for 10 years and I was finishing up my graduate degree at Hunter College. I got an MFA there and I met a Scottish musician um, and we had a mutual friend. He was on tour in New York. And so um, we had a, a whirlwind romance. It was very romantic And I ended up moving to Dublin and we got married and we had a daughter named Lila. And um, so I moved there and I I had not anticipated that. I thought I was going to live in New York my whole life and um, was very happy in New York, but it was quite an adventure. And um, I love Dublin. I still go back to Dublin um, every year and one of my best friends lives there. And um, but I I moved there and I uh, at the time I had been teaching at Hunter College as well as part of the faculty. So I. Moved uh, and I started teaching at the University College in Dublin, and I also taught at the Irish Writers' Center, which is a great, well-established writer's center. Teaches a lot of uh, poetry classes and short fiction and things like that. And um, I taught there for uh, the first couple years I was in Dublin, and we sort of were living this really lovely bohemian kind of life the two of us um my ex now ex-husband robin is a professional musician so he you know he would go out and gig all night and i would have my classes and we sort of just you know we're doing that great it's a great thing and and then we decided that we wanted to have a, a child and so i started i decided it was time to um for one of us to get some health insurance and <laughs> a retirement fund
0: <laughs> wow, a very practical. Well, I
1: I'm, I'm nothing if not practical when I need to be, Stuart. Sadly, that is, yeah, part of my personality as well. Somebody's gotta somebody's gotta you know anchor this. So um so anyway, I started, I started working in the uh, I worked for Yahoo and Microsoft and I, I I continued to teach courses. So I would teach a class, you know, one one kind of a semester, and um I, I will say that my writing I kind of fell off. I, I was not writing as much. And I also at the time was struggling quite badly with endometriosis, which I continued to struggle with for many years. Um, But we did end up having Lila in 2007. And I think having a baby um, sort of made me rethink the direction my life was in. And I, I missed being part of the arts and I was feeling a lot of stress in my current job. And so... In 2009, when Lila was 18 months old, I and two women who I had known through teaching um, for the past few years in Dublin, we started a a creative writing center called the Big Smoke Writing Factory. Uh, We were super excited to do it. It was really exciting. It was uh, right in the middle of Ireland's huge economic recession. So it was quite an interesting time to decide to start a small business with no money Um, but we got real scrappy. And I used a lot of my experience uh, working in search marketing um, to help us sort of get ourselves, you know, in front of people and and, um, with the very limited marketing budget we had to to become a successful writing center. And it's still going strong. It's still alive and well. Um, But I got to go back and I got to work really hard. I got to teach for three years. And Um, I will say that for me, teaching is the best way for me to stay creative. I have found it difficult to find time to do that since I've been back in Omaha, but I have a writing group that I meet with. And I think that we have been keeping each other stimulated and writing. So, but anyway, but that was my Dublin experience.
0: Tell me more about the genesis of Big Smoke Smoke. Writing Factory. how it came to be sort of you've, you've touched a little bit upon uh, the motivation for it, but, but how it came to be and, and what it, what it did, what, what was the why and what, what happened there for people that would take part in it?
1: So the why was, uh, and you know, there were, like I said before, I taught at the writer's center. There, there were definitely established places to, to teach writing in, in Ireland. Um, And the Irish people by and large are very literary and, and love to write and love to express themselves. Um, musically as well and Um, I think for us, we wanted to approach this in a, uh, we wanted uh, to throw a really wide net um, to people who, especially people who were working and who had families and who were grown adults that had always had an interest in writing um, and that maybe just needed some encouragement towards it. We focused quite a lot on beginning courses because we felt that that was a nice way for people to feel um, unintimidated and to be able to walk into a classroom with other people, um, and be able to express themselves. So, you know, part of teaching writing, especially to grown adults who maybe haven't done a lot of it before, but love reading and want to, to, you know, to sit down and express themselves. And I will say in Ireland, it was particularly, I'll tell you a story about, um, about this in a minute, but the Irish, um, aren't always the most forthcoming about their emotions. And I'll give you a cute story about that in a second, but, um, but getting, getting people to come in and sit down and express themselves and to talk about, um, whether it be in a fictional way or in a really straightforward way to talk about, um, their pain, their loss, their happiness, their joy, um, to get them into a place where they feel comfortable and supported was our number one goal. Um, you know, I, the, the story I was going to tell was I had this one group when I first started that I ended up It was such a close poetry group. We loved each other so much that we ended up meeting on a regular basis even after the class ended to touch base. And I'm still in touch with a few people from it who I dearly love. Um, But one of the women in the course named Carmel Sharkey, who was, I believe at the time, about 76 and had been a scientist her whole life and had raised a family and was the most remarkable woman. She'd get up every, she lived on the bay and every day she'd get up and go swim in the water no matter how cold it was. She was just fantastic. Um, yeah. One day I was giving them all a hard time because I, all the stuff that everyone had submitted that day was just, it was cloudy. It wasn't, they weren't, no, nobody was really coming out and saying what they want they needed to say in the poem. And I was feeling it from all of them. And I found after the third time we workshopped a poem that we were all saying the same thing. Like, what is it? What is it that you're trying to say? You're you're giving us all this description. But, you know, there's not that we're not anchored into into expression here. And I sort of kind of gave them all a hard time jokingly and said, what's going on, guys? You can't like everybody has to just we have to throw off this cloak of of worry that about what we're saying. And Carmel said, she said, well, Maggie, you know, you know how when you walk in. When you walk in at the beginning of every class and we say, how are you, Maggie? And you really tell us how you are and you give us the real rundown of what's going on. If you're angry or you're upset or you're happy and we get the full story. She said, because you're an American and that's what Americans do. And she said, we're all Irish. Have you ever noticed that whenever you ask us how we are, we just say, we're grand, we're grand. She said, well, it's just really hard to sit down and, and express ourselves as openly as you do. So So that was a lesson for me. And this was one of my first groups, my first poetry groups that I was teaching. So I had to sort of, you know, listen to what she said and become maybe a little bit more uh, creative in how I got everybody to to finally sort of take the dust off of what they were saying and get to the root of it. But um, but yeah, I go back to your original question. The the real reason uh, for us to start the uh, the center was that we wanted to a place where people could come and feel uh, uh, like they were in a supporting community where people were going to help them become the writer that they wanted to be.
0: So let's get to the root of it again with a selection. Okay. (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I will, let's see, what can I read? I'll read one of my poems if you'd like. so I, I left Ireland because uh, my marriage ended and it was a particularly difficult time. And um, when we ultimately decided to separate, we had actually, it was it was um, a rough week. And unfortunately, we had booked a trip to Portugal um, that we had to go on uh, during this very difficult time with our four-year-old daughter. Do- well, yeah, was she four at the time? Yeah, our four-year-old daughter. And so we sort of in the midst of this trauma had to pack up everything and go, To Portugal. And um, so this poem was written a long time after um, this actually happened, but this uh, took place, this is about uh, this particular day that we spent. I don't know if anyone knows what Cabo de São Vicente is, but it's the westernmost tip of Europe. And you can, when you're in Portugal, you can go and you can stand there at the tip. So Cabo de São Vicente. On a stone scrambling down the coast from Sagre, we descended like steps. You led, your broad back, my anchor point. She followed, a pink wooden fish on a stick in one hand, my hand in the other. I was last, bracing her to the cliff wall when the breeze picked up. Rusty poles jammed into the stone, curled at the top where a rope once fed through, were all we had to grip. To our right the cliff face, to the left the air, just a misstep from the churning sea bashing itself against a fissure where once North America locked into this crumbling red earth. We stopped at the bottom, shocked at the closeness of the desperate sea. I stood back from you. We had come all this way to the westernmost point of Europe to discuss how we would leave one another, but instead... We scramble down this dangerous and broken trail, protecting the one between us from the dense, cold desolation of the sea, this blue and startling vastness.
0: suggested to me a particular fondness for teaching. Yes. And so tell me a, a little bit about why that is so fulfilling and perhaps also why it's so hard to do as an endeavor professionally. Mm.
1: Well, I love teaching because I love because I am very passionate about uh, about writing in general. I, obviously, I, I I am very passionate about people getting that story that they have to tell, whether it's their story or a story that they have invented, or whether it's poems, getting it, um, allowing themselves to express it and to put it down on paper, and to and then also to help them understand. The craft of whatever medium they're writing in um, and how the craft and learning about the craft and understanding the craft and not being intimidated by it um, will help develop what they've written into a piece of art. Um, I used to always give this example when we were whenever I would teach an introductory class about um, because people often I would often, almost every class I'd have someone who would say, well, I think you just it, you just need to sit down and just write it all out. And then that there's your work. And and I, I don't like all the revision because uh, I like revi- uh, personally, I enjoy revision very much because I find it the least stressful part of the writing process um, because I get nervous and worried when I'm not sitting down and creating something new, but I can always pick up a poem that I'm working on and I can sit and tool around with it and do all the things I want to do with it. Um, And and that at least I feel like I'm doing work if I'm not feeling particularly creative um, to start a new poem. But there's always this misconception. I think a lot of people think that that great writers sit down and they just write a poem and it's done and they don't realize the intense amount of work that goes into it. And so I would always give this the example of like becoming a concert violinist, you know. Nobody can sit down and just suddenly play something that is really well crafted and beautiful. You have to practice and you have to learn the craft and you have to understand about the dynamic and and you have to understand about the notes and you have to understand all the theory. and, And you have to put that all together and you have to then use your own magic to to be something really extraordinary. Um, I think the, often when I would tell that story, I'd get this sort of slump in the class of like, oh, this is going to be really hard work. But um, but then what I love, this is where I love teaching, is but then you tell that story and you say, look, this is work and you have we're going to have to work at it, but I'm going to tell you how to work it. And, you know, if you are sitting around looking at line breaks in a poem and you're thinking, this just seems so random, then I'm going to, we're going to look at this poem and we're going to break this poem down and we're going to talk about each line break. And we're going to, we're going to figure out where that choice was made because that every one of those line breaks was a choice that the writer made. It wasn't just a random thing that happened. I mean, maybe it was, and it would just happen to be great. But for the most part, the writer has thought has poured over every single word and they have made specific choices. And then you sort of, you get that excitement where you hone in and say, like, look at, look at how there is a, 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 rhyme between you know deep in this line between these these two different lines and how it's making a musicality and it's making it when you speak the poem out loud it's it's allowing you to feel a sense of song because really poetry comes from song poetry was originally sung and you start to sort of pull out those things and show them and once they start realizing oh there there are a lot of words for instance in this poem that that uh, start with the letter s and it's creating this sh- sound and this is this is about, a wheat field, and and that's sort of actually creating this idea of wind going through the grass, and you know, and you start to sort of get them to investigate what they're actually reading and what the poet actually is trying to to achieve through sound and through rhythm and through deliberate words. Um, then they start to get excited about applying that craft to their own work, and you can say, "Hey, take that poem that you wrote. Go home. Look at every single word, and deliberately." change 10 words in your poem make them better words and maybe they're better words because they describe better or maybe they're better words because they have a sound quality that you suddenly realize you maybe you want the poem to be very abrupt so you put a lot of sounds in or or you know sounds in it or figure out like maybe there's a word you love and figure out a word that would maybe rhyme with it slightly deep in the poem um, to bring out those words particularly like you know almost like a highlighter coming up you know at the person reading it and you you challenge them to make those choices and then suddenly revision becomes this like putting the puzzle together or making something beautiful and so that's where I I feel the most excitement about teaching is that idea that I can get people excited about not just expressing themselves but crafting something that is remarkable and that is the best that the writing can be Um, so that's really where my passion comes from for the most part with teaching what makes it so difficult? <laughs> um, and we could we could go on and on about the the situation with adjuncts in the United States of America, but. Um, it's it's money. I mean, it's really hard to teach writing um, in this world. It's really hard to teach any class unless you have a, um, unless you have a faculty position at a university, it, it, it doesn't pay much and there's no health insurance. And it is not, I mean, when you're 28 years old, it's that hustle is okay. You know, um, I didn't mind the hustle for a long time because I didn't have a child and I didn't have a mortgage and I didn't need health insurance because I was 28 years old and healthy as a horse. Um, and I think that you know, since I left Dublin, I have been trying to find a way to get myself back into teaching, but it is, it takes a lot of time and, um, you have to read an awful lot of work and you have to give it your full attention because those students deserve that. Um, and you know, frankly, if, if there's not a lot of, um, if there's not a lot of money or at least a reasonable amount of money involved to help you support yourself to do that, then it is a very difficult endeavor. And sadly, I think a lot of wonderful teachers out there no longer teach because of that reason. So, so I just brought down the tone of the conversation it's a bit of a sad truth.
0: Well, no doubt. No <laughs> doubt there's a poem that will speak to that. But, um <clears throat> So I I think we can bring that maybe back up by challenging ourselves and me perhaps questioning you with wondering what, therefore, if if we are going to not value creative (coughs) writing teachers Mm -hmm. as much as we would, uh, let's just say... um, Uh, professors teaching at medical school or Mm -hmm. um, economics or whatever. It happens to be banking and so on and so forth. Um, What is the value of poetry and the creative word in our lived experience?
1: Well, I'll start by saying that um, I was just speaking to someone recently about Carlos Bolasan, who's a wonderful um, Filipino-American writer. And um, we were talking about him specifically around the idea of the, the writers being the, throughout history, um, being the people who call out the injustice in the world, who put a light on the people who are being subjugated, um, the women who are not being, um, who are being objectified, um, the cultures that are being um, stifled. Um, it's always been the writers, whether they be writers of music or writers of poems or writers of books. Um, it's always been the writers who have raised the alarm and who have, um, I mean, oftentimes started the revolution, you know, in the past. Um, we must value the artistic expression in our world in order to give the voice to people who are voiceless. And, um, I get sad sometimes at the lack of exposure that writers have now I mean it used to be that even you know 30 years ago talk shows would have the writers of the day that were making an impact on to talk about their books or you know they were they were kind of the rock stars and they were kind of the cool folks and people wanted to know what they were doing and uh, what they were saying and and they were important and I I I'm not saying that's gone completely, but I think that we have devalued the voice of the critical voice, especially um, of our artistic community. I think yesterday was a perfect example of that. We had the comedian who was speaking at um, the Washington Correspondents' Dinner, who was doing the job she was asked to do, which was to roast people and to speak some truth that people didn't want to hear. And, you know, it becomes this um, intense uh, back and forth. And, you know, instead of of saying, you know, this is the role of of the people in our lives that are are the the artists and the comedians and the the poets and the speakers you know, the writers, um, instead of doing that, we we have uh, created this vacuum of um, hurt feelings and hypocrisy. Oh, God, I'm going off on a huge tangent. This,
0: <laughs> this, this is great. Uh, is it? Okay. <laughs> on the 4th of July, 1806, we set sail from the sweet home of Cork. We were sailing away with a cargo of bricks for the Grand City Hall in New York. Twas a wonderful craft. She was rigged for a nap. Know how the wild wind drove her She stood several blasts, she had twenty-seven masts And they call her the Irish Rover We had one million bags of the best line rights We had two million barrels of stone. We had three million sides of our blind horses' heights We have four million barrels of bonds Six million doves, seven million barrels of water. We had eight million barrels of old Nanny Goss tiles and a whole of the Irish Rover. There was old Mickey Cute who played hard on his flute when the ladies lined up for the set. So I have this quote. Um, And and this is timely, too. Uh, This is extracted from an interview by Krista Tippett for her show. uh, Yeah. Um, So this was On Being. Okay. Well, she was interviewing Irish poet Michael Longley, and he said this. One of the marvellous things about poetry is that it's useless. What use is poetry, people occasionally ask in the butcher shop. And the answer is no use. But it doesn't mean to say that it's without value. It's without use, but it has value. It is valuable. And the first people that dictators try to get rid of are the poets and the artists and the novelists and the playwrights. They burn their books. They're terrified of what poetry can do. I love that.
1: See, he said that so much better than (laughs) I I love him. I wish I had Ceasefire, which is I actually posted Ceasefire by him. I actually heard him read Ceasefire um, in Dublin one time, and it was just stunning. Um, Which Ceasefire, I don't know if you know the poem by Michael Longley, is um, it's about uh, Achilles um, allowing Hector, is it Hector that is the the father whose son dies? Yes. Um, Allowing him to come and see his son's dead body and giving him like, a uh, the grace, the gracious gift of being able to go and see his son's body during the, the big Trojan war. And, um, and it's about that, but really, um, he wrote it, he wrote it speaking about the, the troubles about, um, the problems between Northern Ireland and, um, the Republic of Ireland and the British and, um, This is one of the things I love most about poetry is that way where you can you can. And this is something I do a lot. And I have some poems today um, because I this is something I'm passionate about is that idea of either about using mythological voices or stories or using historical um, characters or people and speaking in their voice in a way that that gives their story. Uh, richness and uh, an interesting angle, but also can be infused with either your own personal story or a greater political thing that's going on in the outside world. Um, And he did that um, beautifully with the poem Ceasefire. I don't have it with me. I highly recommend going and getting it.
0: So maybe now, I don't know if I should be saying, let's have a reading of a poem that speaks to this issue, or maybe we should go the other direction and just have an up poem. Oh, God, I don't know if I have
1: any up poems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I'm a, uh, oh, I'm a sucker for a dark poem. Let's see what I've got here. Um, when I was in grad school, I, um, one of my teachers was Lee Young Lee, uh, who was a very unusual character. And I remember getting on the elevator with him once and he was just confused and he was really having trouble negotiating the, the elevator. He was just that type of person, you know, um, but he was a, he's a wonderful, wonderful poet. And before he was my teacher, I had fallen in love with this poem. And um, I often read this poem because, well, I think because it partly because it calls to me um, of, you know, what got me interested in poetry in the first place, but also because it is about quietly taking the world in and tying it to tying those the, what you're observing or what you're feeling to who you are fundamentally as a person so this is called the room and everything in it lie still now while i prepare for my future certain hard days ahead when i'll need what i know so clearly in this moment i am making use of the one thing i learned of all the things my father tried to teach me the art of memory. I am letting this room and everything in it stand for my ideas about love and its difficulties. I'll let your love cries, those spacious notes of a moment ago, stand for distance. Your scent, that scent of spice and a wound, I'll let stand for mystery. Your sunken belly is the daily cup of milk I drank as a boy before morning prayer. The sun on the face of the wall is God. The face I can't see, my soul, and so on. Each thing standing for a separate idea, and those ideas forming the constellation of my greater idea. And one day when I need to tell myself something intelligent about love, I'll close my eyes and recall this room and everything in it. My body is estrangement, this desire perfection. Your closed eyes my extinction. Now I've forgotten my idea. The book on the windowsill, rifled by wind. The even-numbered pages are the past. The odd-numbered pages, the future. The sun is God. Your body is milk. Useless. Useless. Your cries are song. My body's not me. No good. My idea has evaporated. Your hair is time. Your thighs are song. It had something to do with death. It had something to do
0: with love. Has a poem changed you?
1: Yeah, I think when I read, and I brought it with me, um, when I read um, Artemis by Olga Brumas, um, when I was very young, I um, I started understanding that poetry, that idea that I spoke about earlier, that poetry could be that poetry, that the eye in poetry was not always the writer that the I was the speaker and the I was, and the speaker could be anyone. The speaker could be the poet. The speaker could be uh, a character. The speaker could be a friend. Um, and I, and that, and what that did to me as a young poet was it freed me because I, and and I, I'll speak for myself, but I don't think I'm alone here. Um, I think we, as a culture, have trouble with vulnerability. And um, I think I personally, like, I don't have any trouble showing joy. I don't have any trouble being, you know, the life of the party. I do have trouble at times being vulnerable and saying, this is hurting me. This is, this was painful. I need help. Um, and so writing poetry often was... Um, that way into that feeling for myself. And I think it's that way into that feeling. And sometimes it's anger, um, you know, and or feelings of loss. And I think that it is hard when you're a young writer to put that all out there and own it. um, Because it's vulnerable. um, It's wounds, it's, it's opening yourself up. So when I realized that writers successfully were writing about themselves and those deep feelings, um, through the voice of another, it allowed me to to do just that. Um, when my graduate thesis was it, from my master's program was all, it was a collection of poems that was all written through the voices of people in a small town, and it, they were, you know, all these different characters. And, um, and the only way I would have kind of gotten to that point and gotten to be a, what I would consider a, a good writer was by not using my own voice, but by projecting my feelings and my thoughts and the things that I was going through in my life at that time through these other voices. So Artemis, Artemis did that, and I'd be happy to read it by Olga Brahmas. This is from her collection, Beginning with O. I believe she was the first the youngest, sorry, um, person to ever win the, the Yale Young Poets Prize with this book. Artemis. Let's not have tea. White wine eases the mind along the slopes of the faithful body, helps any memory once engraved on the twin chromosome ribbons emerge tentative from the archaeology of an excised past. I am a woman who understands the necessity of an impulse whose goal or origin still lie beyond me. I keep the goat for more than pastoral reasons. I work in silver, the tongue like forms that curve round a throat, an armpit, the upper thigh, whose significance stirs in me like a curviform alphabet that defies decoding, appears to consist of vowels beginning with O, the Omega. Horseshoe, the cave of sound, what tiny fragments survive mangled into our language? I am a woman committed to a politics of transliteration, the methodology of a mind, stunned at the sudden possible shifts of meaning, for which, like amnesiacs, in a ward on fire, we must find words or burn."
0: To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's Radio Show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Wherever you I've been in conversation with Maggie Smith. Maggie, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Stuart.
0: That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.